This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today, we'll talk about crop diversification and fertility with Dr. Perry Miller of Montana State University. If you grow it once, it's hit and miss whether you're going to get a, a nitrogen response behind it. Uh, the second time, especially the third time there's been a pulse crop on that field, it seems like it's, it's much more reliable in terms of that nitrogen response. Dr. Perry Miller is a cropping system scientist in the Land Resources and Environmental Sciences Department at Montana State University. He does a lot of work around crop diversification strategies, and he says a big chunk of that includes working with pulses and how they can make other crops, namely wheat in Montana, grow better. Perry and I today discuss some of these crop diversification strategies, the benefits to including pulses in rotations, some of the work they're doing on crop fertility, and how much nitrogen benefit they're seeing from peas and lentils, and a little bit about inoculants as well. I was able to cover so much ground with Perry in our interview that we've actually decided to split it into two different episodes. So this is part one on the topics you just heard, and you'll hear part two later in the season, which will focus on lentil agronomics. I think you're really going to appreciate Perry's approach, which is both very scientific and very practical. He grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan where his family still farms and worked for a company earlier in his career that bought peas and other commodities. But he said it was a teaching assignment that really got him interested in diving deep into crop diversification strategies. One of my first teaching assignments was actually at the University of Manitoba, and it was a specialty crops production practices class to uh, some vocational agriculture students. And I guess that's when I really got interested in sort of the breadth of diversity that's out there. We can come up with a budget to produce any crop, right? Like what the inputs are and what we expect the market price to be, whether that's wheat or barley or peas or lentils or any crop. But diversification really gets at that value that's created between those crops, right? What one crop can do to help the next one. And to me, that's the perfect reward to management, right? Because everybody's going to do that a little bit differently. You're going to manage that rotation a little bit differently. But there's real value captured in a lot of instances in that rotational space. I mean, I come from a farm. Um, you know, my family still farms up in Saskatchewan, actually. So I, st- I tend to think about it in sort of, you know, dollars and cents to some degree. And Perry has seen the impact of crop diversification in terms of those dollars and cents and in terms of the data. In his state of Montana, he's seen sharp reductions in summer fallow, in no small part because of incorporating crops like peas and lentils. So I guess I can best speak from the Montana perspective, and I would say the evidence is very strong that our agriculture systems have become more diversified. Farmers have become more adventurous, more risk takers than, than they were in the past. Anytime you grow a new crop, there's a chance for pilot error, right? Or tuition costs, whatever you want to call it. And that can, that can cost you some money. Uh, but if you do your homework and some would say start big enough to make sure that you're going to do your homework and not make a mistake. Sometimes if you start too small, you don't really put the effort into it that you should because it doesn't really matter if it doesn't go right. So yeah, our, our systems have diversified pretty dramatically. The one major angle in Montana that we wouldn't necessarily have in surrounding states is we've had a high presence of summer fallow historically. And summer fallow uh, in some areas is a very necessary practice to store a little bit of water that can be the difference between making a profit and not the following year. But it's also the single most harmful thing we do to soils. One of the things we're not doing during that summer fallow period is we're not feeding the soil, right? We're not giving it any biological substrate to keep that soil biology, that soil microbiology active and healthy. And so if you can grow a crop there, that's going to provide the, the kind of 
plant biomass substrate that these organisms need to live and, and exist in a healthy condition in that soil. And so that's been part of my interest ever since I've been in this diversification game, thinking about ways that we could reduce summer fallow. And uh, that's kind of how I stumbled into pulse crops because it turned out they didn't use quite as much water as other crops. They actually fixed some nitrogen. So that, you know, translates or transfers to the following crop. And so all of a sudden it was, it was possible to get rid of some of those summer fallow acres. And not that I had anything particular to do it, but if you look at an example up in northeastern Montana, I just happened to be looking at this with colleagues for a whole other uh, reason. But in 1998, there was 900,000 acres of summer fallow. So that's land that's not producing crops up in northeastern Montana, up in that corner. Uh, in 2022, there was 150,000 acres. So it's, it's declined precipitously. And you can see trends like that into North Dakota, into Saskatchewan, anywhere where there's just enough water to make it work, especially with the advent of no-till agriculture, which has put a little bit more water in play. We've been very successful at reducing those summer fallow acres. How much of that reduction in summer fallow would you attribute to pulse crops? Uh, I could actually put up a graph uh, that shows a linear line of decline of summer fallow acres in northeastern Montana and a linear increase in pulse crops. You know, we look for things to study, right? And so we've actually had a, a PhD student uh, look at some satellite imagery and actually make some very de close determinations about exactly how that offset has happened. And so it's almost been a one-for-one -one kind of replacement. And to be clear, lentils and peas are the two pulse crops that are having this positive impact on reducing summer fallow. Uh, Perry did say there used to be some chickpea acreage as well, but Askakaida has been such an issue that it's mostly lentils and peas today. Certainly part of the appeal to diversifying a rotation by adding these crops are the potential nitrogen benefits. We talked about this with Dr. Dave Franson back on season one of this podcast. I believe that was episode five. Perry emphasizes that, yes, these benefits are real, but they aren't always predictable or nearly as cut and dry as we might want them to be. Sure. So I, I guess, you know, what is that nitrogen benefit behind pulse crops? It's not super easy to predict, but it's real, it's common, it happens often. There used to be some thinking that, well, if I produce, you know, X number of bushels of yield of, of pea or lentils, then I'll have so many pounds of nitrogen, you know, transfer to the next crop. We've proved pretty well that's not true. That's not the way it works. And there actually was some good research that came out of North Dakota State University that suggested maybe adopting more of a flat credit mentality. In other words, if you grow a pulse crop, just assume there's going to be some amount of nitrogen credit that you can apply to a subsequent crop. And it seems like that's closer to reality. And we have done a lot of work. I mean, almost a ridiculous amount of work at looking at nitrogen uh, transfers behind pulse crops, both when we're growing to grain or if we just use them as a cover crop or a green manure, which is just a type of cover crop. And we can get a little bit more nitrogen from the, that cover crop scenario. A couple things I would mention there, it does seem to matter what soil type and, and uh, climate you're interacting with. And I'm not quite sure how that works because in some, I, I mentioned that, that dry uh, north central Montana, the triangle with the deep soils. We've done some work in that region where we do multiple cycles of cover crops. So, and we, we do it more often than a farmer would do just so we can get to our conclusions faster. But we'll grow uh, that cover crop every other year with wheat and then see what happens. And in those situations, we can get those soils conditioned to where they're almost kicking out too much nitrogen. 
it develops into like an over-fertilization situation. And in a dry climate like Montana, if you have too much nitrogen available too quickly in the growing season, then that wheat crop uses up all its water. And then by the time it gets to grain field, there's no water left to make the grain. We call that haying off. So you, you get a lot of vegetative matter, but you don't really get the, the heads filled. So, I mean, legumes do what they're supposed to do and, and they can be powerful. In our wetter environment down here in Bozeman, we're uh, 16.3 inches, I think, annual precipitation. We get our summer isn't a whole lot wetter than the rest of Montana, although we're cooler, uh, but our winters are a lot wetter. We get a lot more snow and a lot more precipitation over that winter period. So we fill up our soils really well. For whatever reason, it seems to take longer to get that nitrogen response from legumes in our wetter climate. It takes repeated cycles before we really start to see some dramatic changes in soil organic nitrogen. And we did that same sort of study where we grew pulses, or in this case, we grew peas every other year and managed those peas differently. Every year, we'd take them for grain or we'd hay them or we'd leave them as a cover crop, those three ways. And then we measured the amount of nitrogen that was transferred to a subsequent wheat crop. And it turns out that if we grow those peas to grain, it's somewhere around 20 pounds, maybe certain years, 25 pounds. So, you know, today's nitrogen cost, that's real money. If we take it for hay, we actually do get it for whatever reason. We're getting a little bit more nitrogen transfer out of there, probably because we're terminating it a little earlier. And so that might be 25, 30 pounds. If we take it for a cover crop, we're seeing that it's somewhere around 60 pounds in our environment. So that's getting to be a significant amount of nitrogen. You know, trying to come up with those numbers for any individual farm, though, I think it's going to take some time and, and probably repeated cycles of growing these pulse crops. If you grow it once, it's hit and miss whether you're going to get a, a nitrogen response behind it. Uh, the second time, especially the third time there's been a pulse crop on that field, it seems like it's, it's much more reliable in terms of that nitrogen response. Perry also added that although it's not straightforward, he does tend to see a little bit more nitrogen benefit from peas than lentils. He said this isn't a black and white assessment, but all things equal, he tends to see just a little bit more from the peas, which I thought was interesting. Uh, we'll come back to those fertility studies he mentioned in just a few minutes. But first, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into exactly what's happening in the soil with this nitrogen that makes it such a mystery as to when and how it will become available for subsequent crops. Yeah, no, because you, you're, now you're talking about soil organic matter pools. And that is, that's, you know, there's a lot of smart people still trying to figure that out. We know it has, it has everything to do with that soil organic matter form of, of these nutrients, but just exactly, you know, how the, the inflows and outflows work from that, that's still not highly predictable. Having said that, I would say, however you get that, that pool built up, one of the things we've noticed, again, at our work at, here at Bozeman, so in a wetter climate, that pool seems to be auto-tuned to the growing season. And by that, I mean, we've got this organic nitrogen pool, right? If you've got organic carbon, you've got organic nitrogen, they go together in a fairly fixed ratio. So if you have one, you have the other. If we get a wetter growing season, that's when we have bigger yield potential for wheat, right? Because we don't know exactly what our yield potential is going to be in any particular year. Because it's wetter, we've got a bigger yield potential for that wheat. Because it's wetter, uh, the soil microbial activity also persists or, or lasts longer in the soil. So those mineralization reactions that are creating an outflow of nitrogen from that pool are also larger. And so when you need the more nitrogen, you know, it tends to be auto-tuned. And that's a little different than putting a big pulse of chemical nitrogen, you know, at some point near seeding and then, you know, hoping for the best. And the counter is also true to that, right? If it's drier than normal, if that soil dries then that, that organic matter pool 
tends to not be mineralized as heavily because it's limited by mo- you know moisture for those microbes. So when you need less nitrogen, the whole system seems to be somewhat auto-tuned to provide you less nitrogen. I don't think it works perfectly like that all the time, but we have seen it where and it has worked really well like that. So One thing also to just keep in mind as we're discussing these studies and their impact on crop fertility and the soil is that most of Perry's work is all done in no-till systems. So if you might be listening from an area that's perhaps not as dry and maybe no-till isn't as common, that could be one of many variables that, that can impact these types of results. I decided long ago just to work on no-till systems. There's just so many advantages to no-till systems. And in our dry environment, this diversification, some of these things we've been talking about is going to be a lot less likely to happen just because you don't have that additional water in place. So I, I really can't comment intelligently on tilled systems. I have worked in organic systems also, which of course are reliant on tillage. And we do, we still see some nitrogen benefits there. And actually um, some of our organic farmers in Montana like to grow winter peas as opposed to spring peas, because they're seeing much more significant nitrogen fixation in those winter peas than they do with spring peas. Because it's better time to when our precipitation comes, uh, by the time we terminate it, we're still getting moisture. Though that plant's been growing at a vigorous rate, fixing nitrogen, you know, there's no moisture stress to, to shut down that nitrogen fixation process. So I think that's why the winter legumes can be uh, much bigger contributors when it comes to soil nitrogen. And we've measured that in research plots too. So some really interesting points already on trying to optimize nitrogen fixation through the types of crops and when they are grown, etc. But what about inoculants? Miller and colleagues have done a multi-year, multi-location study on the impact of inoculants, and he has some key takeaways to share from this work. Uh, I was just telling you about this fertility study that we did at seven locations, three in North Dakota, four in Montana, three years. So we ended up with 20 site years because there was one location one year that that, uh, didn't work out. So that's a pretty good size of data. And we did look at inoculation in that study. So I guess a couple of take-home points there. Inoculation, rhizobial inoculation was important. 30% of our sites, so that's six out of 20 site years, uh, we saw a positive yield response and a pretty sizable uh, yield response. Some of those locations, if you didn't introduce that nitrogen-fixing bacteria to allow that nitrogen fixation process to happen, you would take a pretty big yield hit at some of those locations. So 30% of the sites, and you know, we're research centers. I would say our soils are typical in some way, right? We're probably at least you know, average to what a lot of farms are encountering, I would hope. So that's big enough to get my attention right there. What was more interesting is if you've grown lentils on a field before, the rhizobia become endemic to that soil, or they can. And so it it makes it a lot less worrisome the next time you grow lentils in that field because you've already got a form of that rhizobia that that hangs out in the soil, and with next time lentils grow, they're able to respond. So that's why we don't see responses on every year. So having said that, then we track the history and pea and lentils actually use some of the same rhizobial strains. So you have to know, you know what your pea and lentil production was for a history in a field. And what we found was that it wasn't, there wasn't a real good correspondence between that pulse history and what kind of response we got to that inoculant, which was surprising to me. What that means is we had sites where we had grown a lot of peas and lentils and we still got a response to the inoculant. That surprised me. We had other sites where we had never grown peas or lentils, and we didn't get a response to the inoculant. 
so I guess I just go with sort of the majority. If you know, if 30% of our sites saw a response, it's not a huge expense as a rule. So again, it's maybe be conservative, be cautious, make sure that that rhizobia is present. The other thing we did look at though was was the form of an inoculant. So there's two basic ways you can add an inoculant to a legume crop. One is you coat the seed in some way. That's probably the more common way. But there's also uh, what we call soil inoculants, where they take that inoculant, form peat granules, and you actually just, almost like you're banding fertilizer, you band those granules right in the seed row with, with your pulse seed. And so we wanted to know, you know, there's been some work out of Alberta in particular that showed quite an advantage to the soil application method compared to the seed coat method. And there can be you know, more to the reasoning why that is the case. But we wanted to look at that same thing across these 20 site years. And it was equivocal. In most places, it didn't matter, which probably meant we were doing a good job of providing the inoculant. However, you know, we provided it in either form and either method. We had a couple of sites that did better with seed coat inoculant. We had a couple of sites that did better with, with soil-placed inoculant. We had one site that did a lot better with soil-placed inoculant, which tells me that there's that, that one site in that one year, their seed coat inoculant probably failed, right? It got dried out. And so you're sort of comparing dead rhizobia to something that's more reliable in, in the soil inoculant formulation. And I guess that alluded to that Alberta work, that was something that they looked at. They looked at the die-off rate. So I'm applying these live bacteria out of a bag and putting some sort of sticker on it, applying to the seed coat, or I'm leaving it in a granule and uh, putting it in the soil. They look at the die-off rate comparison between those two methods. And when you put it as a thin coat over the seed coat, things can start to desiccate. And I, I don't know if I'm explaining it exactly right, but the, the rhizobial numbers start to drop pretty quickly. In the soil inoculant, that, that wasn't the case. So they were persisting a lot longer. So you know, we had one site out of 20 that showed a really remarkable response to, uh, to the soil inoculant. But I certainly could not conclude from that that one was better than the other because it was really the, that one instance. But your sense is that one was particularly dry? You know, uh, it was a drier year, but not crazy. So I'd have to, you know, grill my colleague at that location a little bit more, and he'd have to try to talk to his technicians to figure out exactly what happened in, in that one site year. But clearly, the seed coat inoculant didn't work at that site. And it, we have a control also in that study, right, where we don't apply any inoculant. The seed coat inoculant was the same as a control. So we know that the, the seed coat didn't work at that one location. Right. Right. But overall, uh, it, it seemed to be really varied of, as far as which. It, it was overall no difference is what I would say. Yeah. It's important to know because the soil inoculant is a lot more expensive than the seed coat inoculant. So it can be three to four times the cost of the seed coat inoculant. So, you know, that has to be a factor in also. And before we close out today's episode, one important point to emphasize in any discussion about crop diversification is the importance of extending rotations of pulses. Perry says that in some of his research environments, they may push these rotations for the purposes of data collection, but this isn't something he would ever recommend in a commercial setting. I'm so glad you brought that up. Because uh, some of the things that we do in our research studies are, are meant to accelerate a certain response. And so, yeah, growing a pulse crop every other year is not going to be a good disease management strategy at all. We'd like to think maybe one in four years, certainly no more than one in three years if you're in a very dry area. There's some things that I think producers can get away with in a very dry area like north central Montana just because the climate tends to be so dry. 
But if you get out into areas that have got more reliable summer precipitation, you know, northeastern Montana, into the Dakotas, up into Saskatchewan, you're going to have more disease pressure. And so you just need to be careful about it. You know, a perfect example are chickpeas or, or garbanzo beans, whatever you want to call them. There was a very significant acreage of production up in Saskatchewan at one time, but with their moisture environment, cooler moisture environment, chickpea production has fallen dramatically up there. I guess in some sense that creates opportunities for other farmers, right? But I've seen the same thing happen in northeastern Montana. One time there was a lot of chickpea production there. Same with uh, the western Dakotas. That acreage has fallen off precipitously. That tells you that farmers are dealing with disease issues. I think chickpea is probably a bit of a unique beast in that it almost doesn't matter what the rotation is there. The way those spore clouds form and, and move about, even if you've managed good rotations, you can still suffer disease. So I think it's more of an issue with peas and lentils to be smart about how you rotate. And pea and lentil count is the same thing, right, in terms of rotation, in terms of the diseases that they're susceptible to. They're, they're not very different. So yeah, if you want to have a long-term ability to produce pulses on your area, I would probably go with one in four years. I want to thank Dr. Perry Miller of Montana State University for being on the podcast. You'll get to hear part two of our interview focused more on lentil agronomics later this season. So make sure you're subscribed to the show so you don't miss that one, as well as our very next episode with Pulse Crops plant breeder, Dr. Nonoy Bandilio. In addition to asking him about the plant breeding process and about successful varieties, I ask about the varieties that are in the pipeline currently and which one he's most excited about. I'm really excited about this zero tannin lentil. It's called zero tannin because tannin is the one that causes the oxidation process that causes the seed to turn into brown. So the zero tannin lentil that we have in the pipeline, it doesn't have tannin or there's minimal tannin and it does not have any brownish color, which I would say in my opinion is not really a good characteristic of the seed of lentil. Again, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss that upcoming episode and many, many others. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the Northern Pulse Growers Association, the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, and the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council. We're releasing these episodes two times per month throughout the season, and we want to make sure that this information stays relevant to you. So if you're finding it useful, we'd sure love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and feel free to tweet us by using the hashtag growingpulsecrops. We'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks.